Hi everyone, my name is Harper Brown and I am the Senior Online Editor for the Wisconsin Law Review. In my role, I manage and edit the Wisconsin Law Review Forward, which is the online companion to the Wisconsin Law Review Print Edition. The online journal was founded to publish pieces on current issues and to reach a wider audience than our more traditional print law review. In keeping with that goal, we are launching a podcast to discuss current legal issues that affect those within the legal community and beyond. Our goal is to make the legal scholarship happening within the University of Wisconsin impactful and useful to individuals around the state. Each week, we will discuss a different current events topic with experts that have published law review articles on the area of interest. This week's episode will cover the topic of the COVID-19 pandemic and the legal issues surrounding it. The Wisconsin Law Review Forward has published three articles this year evaluating different areas of the law affected by COVID-19. Our panel consists of the authors of these articles and will be moderated by 2L Law Review Associate Dylan Ochoa. Hi, my name is Dylan Ochoa, and I am a 2L associate on the Wisconsin Law Review. First, I want to thank each of our panelists for joining us today. The Forward team and our listeners appreciate your willingness to take time out of your busy schedules to share personal insight into your academic work and expertise with us. This episode's topic is COVID-19. Each of our panelists have written articles for the Wisconsin Law Review, offering analysis and critique of various subjects related to the impact of the pandemic. Professors Edelman and Baker's article considers COVID-19's impact on college football programs and their effort to salvage a fall season. Professor Packin's article evaluates banks and the Paycheck Protection Program, which was a critical component of the CARES Act passed in response to the pandemic. Professor Kamner's article analyzes the legal environment surrounding vaccinations and considers how we can use them to reach herd immunity once a COVID vaccine is available. What I would like to do now is allow each of our panelists the opportunity to introduce themselves, to provide information about their legal and academic background, and then to introduce and speak about their articles. After introductions, I will then pose some specific questions for each of our panelists about their articles. Towards the end of the discussion, I will provide more general questions which look ahead to the coming months. We will then close the discussion by allowing each of our panelists the opportunity to voice any closing thoughts. So, with that roadmap, Let's begin with Professors Edelman and Baker. Please go ahead and introduce yourselves. Well, good afternoon. Uh, I'm Professor Edelman, uh, along with Professor Thomas Baker, who's here, uh, and Professor John Holden, uh, who is not here. Uh, We co-authored an article about the playing of college sports in the time of COVID-19, looking at this from a legal and ethical perspective. Uh, My full-time position, like two of the other speakers here, uh, is as a professor at Baruch College's Zicklin School of Business. Uh, And I attacked this paper as someone with four separate degrees. Uh, Someone with an economics degree from the Wharton School of Business, a law degree from the University of Michigan, a sports management degree from the University of Michigan, and a higher education administration degree uh, from Baruch College. So the goal was to really take an interdisciplinary look Uh, at the playing of college football during these unconventional times. Uh, And we walked away with a series of best practices and conclusions, uh, which I will leave Thomas to talk about. But I think we could say safely uh, that many of the largest conferences in the country, including the Big Ten, are absolutely not following and not meeting our levels of ideal to move forward with sport. Hi, my name is Thomas Baker. And um, I was also part of this article with, with Professor Edelman. I am an associate professor at the University of Georgia where I teach sports law in the sport management program. Um, similar to uh, Professor Edelman, I've attacked this, this paper also from multiple, uh, I guess you say academic perspectives in the sense that I grew from, I built, I built from my uh, experience as a lawyer and, and as a, uh, with, from my law degree that I obtained at Loyola University and also my PhD training from the University of Florida in sport management. In addition to being a professor, I am also the editor of the Journal of Legal Aspects of Sport. And um, I'm I'm happy to be here today talking to you about our paper. Professor Packin, you can go and introduce yourself now. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. And 
excited to talk about my research, which talks about a very timely um, banking issue. And by background, I am a colleague of Professor Edelman. I'm also an associate uh, professor focusing on business law at the Ziegland School of Business at City University of New York. Uh, prior to entering academia, I practiced banking law at Skidden Arps for six years and have completed an SJD focusing on risk management of uh, banks and other financial institutions. And uh, during the last almost during the last uh, almost year, I've been focusing a lot on what is happening in um, financial regulation and in banking with uh, COVID impacting our daily lives. And this is what I plan to speak with you guys about. Thank you, uh, Professor Kaminer. Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. I am uh, also at the Zicklin School of Business at Brew College, which is part of the City University, along with Professors Packin and Professor Edelman. And my background is that after um, graduating from Columbia Law School, I worked in-house at IBM doing employment law. And then I moved to a civil rights organization, the Anti-Defamation League where I did both constitutional and employment law. And my interest in vaccines really stems from my work um, in employment law and my work in religion and the law, because my initial interest in the topic really had to do with religious exemptions to mandatory vaccination policies, as well as um, vaccine mandates by employers. And essentially what I look at at this article is the whole idea the public health experts have agreed that the best way to end the pandemic is gonna be with a safe and effective vaccine. And this past week, there was really some excellent news where Pfizer announced the preliminary results where the vaccine was more 90% effective. The problem is the polls have also indicated only about half of Americans would be willing to get vaccinated, which is not enough to reach herd immunity. Herd immunity is what occurs when a large enough number of people have immunity that community disease spread becomes unlikely. So what I look at in this article is approaches that both the government and employers could take to ensure that enough Americans are vaccinated, that we do reach herd immunity. And I essentially look at three separate things. The first thing that I look at is um, the authority of states to pass mandatory vaccination laws. And I discuss the very broad authority that states have to pass these kind of laws. I then look at what private businesses could do, looking both at how businesses could mandate vaccination for employees, as well as mandate vaccination for customers. And then finally, I look at behavioral economics and how that can be used by both government and employers to nudge people to be vaccinated. And I essentially conclude that the best approach to reach herd immunity is some combination of government mandates, business policies, and nudging. Thank you everybody uh, for the introductions. Uh, so what I'd like to do now is uh, pose some specific questions that we have uh, for our panelists. Uh, beginning with Professors Edelman and Baker. Uh, professors, your article discussed six guidelines for college football programs to follow in structuring their football seasons. Uh, a focus of the guidelines was on increasing transparency between student athletes, coaches, training staff, and administrators uh, with respect to testing, sanitation standards, and the overall risks associated with conducting a football season during a pandemic. Uh, given that we are now roughly two months into the season, uh, can you share some of your thoughts on whether sports programs adequately consider these priorities? And then additionally, are schools which did not prioritize some of those guidelines properly adapting as the season continues? From my perspective, and, and it, might be, it might be good to have us both kind of fill in because we do have two different perspectives on this in the sense that we're, both, we're probably seeing different things because what's happening in college football is, is it varies from program to program and from, from conference to conference. I mean, at first, it, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 weren't even going to have a football season, and yet now here we are. Um, you know, if we look at our six proposals or our six best practices, I guess you could say, you know, there was a theme in the sense that we did not want to expose college athletes to more risk than they would encounter without intercollegiate athletics. And unfortunately, I think that the case count on 
you know, I mean, just this week, I believe there are up to three games in the SEC that are being postponed because too many players have contracted COVID-19. And it's not just players, it's also coaches as well. So what we've seen is an inability to manage the disease within, within college football, and in particular in conferences like the SEC that have had to cancel so many games. And, um, and I think a big reason for this is, is that there's no uniformity. There's no uniformity in approach, or at least if there is, we don't know because there's such little transparency as to how college football is operating and how college sports in general are operating. I can say that in where I am in the South, fall sports are pretty much back altogether. So one of our suggestions was that you don't start football back up until all the other sports are safe to resume play. Well, in some schools in the South, what we've seen is a situation where um, they're like, we're bringing back all the sports and we're going to have them all on campus. And it's schools like mine at the University of Georgia, it's not even a problem in terms of, you know, in relation to the overall student body because our entire student body is doing live in-phase classes for the most part. So we're back, we're operating as if for the most part, there is no uh, pandemic. And granted, we, you know, my institution does have some pandemic controls, but we are in live face-to-face -face instruction and we do have most of our sports up and running. But at the same time, we don't know what is happening in terms of preparedness. We don't know what is happening in terms of managing this virus at any of the institutions really, because we don't find out until we hear of case reports. And for this reason, it's very hard for us to scrutinize this being because there's just so little transparency. We do see that uh, I believe the Big Ten and some other institutions are operating primarily with just football in the sense that, you know, they're taking a different approach. And, and when you have situations where you have schools that are, that are just bringing back the money-making sports, it creates a whole, you know, another list of concerns ranging from Title IX issues to the fact that we are we're revealing that this is about making money more so than it is about providing educational opportunity. And uh, because of that, it, it's, again, there's just, there's so little for us to really be able to diagnose because it's just so clouded. And the only real evidence we have is when games are canceled. With that said, I'll turn it over to uh, my colleague, Mark Edelman to, to have some comments. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, the first thing that I would say is we have to give schools like the University of Georgia credit for something. Uh, and the credit we have to give them is at least they are consistent. Uh, in our six recommendations, uh, the first one was that you should not be having college sports such as football when you don't have a student body on campus. If you do not think it's sufficiently safe to have the students go to school, if everybody's on Zoom, uh, to bring in 80 to 100 football players because their revenue makers does not seem appropriate. Uh, and the second, as Professor Baker alluded to, was the notion of if you're going to allow sport on a case-by-pace basis, there needs to be a medical basis for the decision as opposed to a revenue basis donor. So for example, uh, we reached the conclusion that perhaps it would be okay for a school to say, we are starting up tennis but not football, given that in tennis, you're separated on a different side of a net and it's easier to socially distance. Uh, but what we're seeing a lot of schools do, which is that we are going to have football, but not the other sports, doesn't seem to be a medical basis for that decision uh, and entirely a revenue generated one. Uh, as far as the conferences that bother me most, uh, sadly, I say this as a Michigan law graduate and sadly, I say this uh, speaking at a Wisconsin Law Review event. Uh, but number one on my list for the one that got this done poorly is the Big Ten. Uh, and that was ironic because the Big Ten seemed to have been handling this the best uh, up until a few weeks ago. They seem to be taking the view that we're not going to start even with practice until we get rates below a certain amount. Uh, they seem to be very serious about testing. Uh, the Big Ten seemed to even say we're not going to have students back on school until we're safe, and that all sounded very good. Uh, in fact, a lot of credit initially needs to go to Kevin Warren, who is the new athletic director for the Big Ten, uh, who pushed back and said this is wrong to do for students. We're calling the football players students. They shouldn't be here until we say it's safe for the other students. 
the very unusual event that took place was uh, sometime in very late September or early October, uh, purportedly the soon to be former president of the United States picked up the phone uh, and called the Big Ten uh, and began encouraging the schools and the conference to come back and return to sport for football. Now, the president of the United States is free to call anybody for whatever purpose he or she wishes to call them. Um, but the notion that after this phone call, there was a 180 and everything that the Big Ten had worked so hard to maintain until policy for starting was thrown away and they went back to the revenue maximization role uh, was very unfortunate. And I think it's incredibly unfortunate uh, for the college football players who don't get paid, uh, are not allowed to endorse products, uh, accept the risk of injury, and now accept the heightened risk of COVID-19 uh, simply to make revenues for a university uh, and perhaps to have appeased some political interests of our, at the time, president of the United States. The both of you seem to talk about the need for uniformity. Um, is, can you describe the, the power structure between the NCAA and the, the smaller associated um, sports programs? So like the SDC? Yeah. Well, see, that, that, that's, that's a huge problem, Dylan, because the NCAA, when it's convenient, operates as a sports league when it needs protection under antitrust law, when it needs um, some sort of special deference, it, it wears this hat as, a, as, a, as an organization that operates as a sports league. But when it doesn't want that being a sports league, it, it sheds that role. And that's what we have seen with COVID-19. We've seen the NCA come out with some best practices as to what they suggest. And one of them was that you don't have live sports on campus until you have all your camp, your students on campus. But we've seen that this mandate has not been followed because really it's, it's, the NCA says, but these are just suggestions. And um, because of that, we, leadership has deferred down to the member institutions individually, even more so than the conferences. We have very little organization from, a, a, there's almost no top-down organization with this. It's, it's basically the members are managing themselves. And because of this, it, 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 it creates a very strange dynamic. And since it's not like what we saw in Major League Baseball, where you had uniform controls and uniform protocols, it's not like what we've seen in um, with the NFL or, or, or best yet, the NBA with its bubble. It's, it's the NCAA is pretty much trying to say, it's not me, it's them. We're washing our hands of this and best of luck. And the very real irony here as an antitrust scholar, uh, and keep in mind the NCAA is made up of 1200 independent member colleges. So they're a bottom up trade association uh, that is supposed to pass their own rules. Uh, and they were created in 1906, primarily for the purposes of trying to maintain safety in sport. So much of what the NCAA does and goes to court to try to protect, uh, such as maintaining rules that prevent college athletes from earning compensation. That's the type of behavior that would violate antitrust law when 1,200 member schools get together and reach an agreement to affect free trade. Now, by contrast to that, if these same schools got together and all said that we are not going to have football without meeting safety protocols, and they put in place what those safety protocols were and said, we're all following those protocols. Now, that is the type of thing that almost certainly they would be able to do under antitrust law. That's not likely to be seen as a combination conspiracy or collusion and restraint of trade. That's much more likely to be seen as a standard development of best practices by a trade association without direct economic effect. Uh, so in this topsy-turvy world, Everything that the NCAA is not supposed to be able to do, uh, either because it violates antitrust law or is a bit of far from their charter, they try to do to maximize revenues. Whereas the things that most directly come to the core of their charter uh, when they were initiated in 1906 and are least likely to run afoul to antitrust laws, they take a hands-off approach uh, because many members do not want there to be restraints on the protocols that they put in place for health reasons. Um, do either of you have any, have any thoughts, and I know that uh, Professor Baker mentioned it recently, um, on the NBA bubble system, is there anything that college football can learn um, from the professional associations 
um, experience with their respective bubbles or their respective programs? Well, the problem with the bubble system is that bubbles are negotiated and we don't have that negotiation in college sports. Uh, so it, it, because if you think about a bubble, what it's requiring the athletes to do is to basically sequester themselves, to seal themselves off from the outside world, you know, and, and, and basically live in a, in a sports focused bubble where no one from the outside comes in and no one from the inside comes out. That kind of restraint on college athlete mobility would be very controversial in the absence of compensation and in the absence of some degree of negotiation for setting the standards that would dictate that bubble. So in this sense, I think one of the reasons why we haven't seen movement on, you know, towards a bubble type system, and there has been talk of a bubble for the college football playoffs, is because I think, and it may happen in a very small frame, it could be like what they did for baseball in the World Series, where we're going to have like a, a World Series bubble. Um, well, in this sense, maybe they could get by with a college football playoff bubble, but having a season in a bubble, which is probably what would be needed to have a season, you know, without canceling games and without endangering lives as they have, that is just unworkable with, uh, based on the fact that these are students, not professional athletes. Once again, I mean, this exactly as Professor Baker was saying, uh, there's no need to go back through the labor side, which Professor Baker got into, but even from a pure educational policy, is stuff lived between a rock and a hard place, and it's their own creation. Uh, the NCAA likes to have this mission that we don't pay our college athletes because they're students first, and they're supposed to be just like any other students. Uh, but the notion of taking a group of 85 football players and putting them in the bubble and restricting them that way and if it's a school that actually is live with classes, literally pulling them away from classes to put them in the bubble, uh, that's the antithesis of what the NCAA state admission is. Now, one of the biggest problems we have in college sports that really differentiates it from professional sports is in a league such as the NBA. We know the owners are there to maximize revenue. Uh, we have the players trying to negotiate terms and we have agreements. In the context of college sports, if these athletes are supposed to be students first, uh, then how do you justify taking them away from either their classrooms or in some cases, Zoom rooms, putting them in a bubble and telling them the bubble is to make sure to preserve college football and the revenues from college football? I don't think there is any way with consistency to what they claim their mission is to move forward with that. And part of why we probably have not seen a college bubble yet uh, is within the world of the NCAA and college sports, we have three types of people. Uh, we have the ones that are in the camp of where I am, and I believe Professor Baker was, which says we need to reform the entire system. Uh, we have on the other extreme, the folks that say they're just okay with the hypocrisy and they come up with some reason to justify it. Uh, but in the middle, you have the people that say, we don't want to pay college athletes because education has to come first. But consequently, we at least have to make a show that we're prioritizing education and treating them like other students. And for those that at least want to make a showing of that, uh, the putting the football players in the bubble would be a non-starter. Yeah, thank you, professors. Um, so what I'd like to do now is, is move on to some questions that we have for Professor Packin. Uh, professor, your article focuses on the failures of the banking system uh, to provide adequate relief through the Paycheck Protection Program to small businesses. The article offers as a solution, top-down regulatory approaches, market-led initiatives, and judicial interpretation as a means to combat the banking system's prevailing focus on ensuring the financial continuity of wealthy big business clients. Uh, while some of the government's uh, procedural changes to how loans are distributed and applied for resulted in some substantive change in who received the loans, there was no real change in the underlying banking industry's philosophies uh, and priorities. Uh, obviously, banking culture is deeply ingrained in capitalism, uh, but can you speak to some ways in which the government can provide oversight into those practices through legal constraints? Sure. So I'll just um, take a few steps back and sort of talk about what happened during the COVID-19 economic, COVID economic crisis and then um, sort of think about, talk about what I think might be uh, a better way for the government to address the failures. Um, 
but basically what my article focuses on is um, what you know be has become apparent during the crisis, which was there was a major economic crisis. The government needed um, its agents, the commercial banks for this purpose, uh, to help it distribute funds immediately to anyone uh, that the, gov the government need, which were individuals that needed uh, the paycheck protection um, funds that were, you know, sent to them, direct checks, and the individuals that needed the uh, pay paycheck protection program uh, loans to give them not relief checks, but um, blood line into their, you know, businesses and enable them to stay afloat and function throughout the crisis. And so what basically happened was that very quickly, very early on, in, at the beginning of, of the um, pandemic financial consequences unfolding, uh, even as early as March, it was clear that these folks, the businesses and the people needed the money. Um, and the government has very limited ability to actually distribute such funds on its own. It has to rely on someone. And so there were two options. The traditional option, which is the commercial banks, which basically are, are concretes for the monetary policies of the Federal Reserve in the US. Or the government could have gone a different route, which is use the assistance of fintechs, all sorts of financial technology companies that um, also cater to all sorts of populations, in particular, um, the unbanked and underbanked, which could have been a, a, a way to go. And eventually they ended up including them, even though initially it was only the traditional financial institutions, the traditional commercial banks that the government um, turned to for help to distribute the whether it was for businesses or the checks. And what happened with the commercial banks was that, as you correctly pointed out, when they were trying to do their task, what the government has asked them to do, figure out who to give the loans and give those funds quickly, or also um, process the checks that were sent, the relief checks in the individuals, it became apparent that they didn't do as good of a job or didn't do it quite the way the government had intended for them to do. Because what ended up happening is with connection to the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, um, that as you correctly pointed out, the funds first got to the bigger, wealthier, um, more mainstream kind of customers and didn't quite make it to the you know, minority business owners the women that are, you know, business owners, the less connected and less, you know, privileged or lower profile types of businesses, which had a harder time getting those funds. In terms of the uh, relief checks, um, again, all sorts of, un, you know, predicted um, desired hurdles um, that we were learning and reading about during the first few months of the crisis was that all these checks that were sent to individuals, some of them never got to the con con consumers. Others, um, couldn't get a hold of the money because uh, debt collectors or banks that you know decided to charge fees, late fees, all sorts of other fees, have uh, taken possession of the funds before the individuals got to use them for shelter, for food, um, for other types of basic needs. And so very quickly, it became apparent that the banks have essentially sort of disappointed us. And um, a very good question to ask is what can we do about it? So in my article, I suggested the four methods that you mentioned which are either you know creating some type of a top-down regulatory approach to better handle these things in the future or you know rely on more market-led initiatives um figure out an, inter an interpretive fakes sort of offer the judicial system or publicly shame them which you know is something that we've seen more of whether it was um with big businesses or um sports teams that we that many people felt like maybe these businesses should have waited before taking the money and let you know those smaller businesses take those first. And so we saw some of that happening even um, academic institutions. But you're asking what can we actually change in terms of the bank's motives, the way that the banks approach all of this. And I think this is the million dollar question or, or the many million dollar question, right? Um, because we've seen these issues consistently to arise since the financial crisis in 2008. Banks are capitalistic creatures that are meant to make their shareholders wealthier. At the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. But there are ways we can figure out um, around this and kind of incentivize them to do a better job, be more ethical. And actually, interestingly enough, um, after publishing uh, this article with you guys, I've um, been discussing 
the topic a lot with another professor from a different uh, university. And we're working on a follow-up piece that will sort of really answer this question. And, and one way to address this is, you know, change, Professor Kaminer was talking about carrots and sticks and behavioral economics and um, ways to kind of incentivize people and, and move um, organizations or individuals in different ways. And, and one way to sort of approach this would be to incentivize banks by actually changing the reward system, the way that they work. And one way to do this, because we can't tell them be more ethical, we'll reward you for that. But one way to do this is, is almost kind of tweak their, um, their currently um, rating, uh, you know, existing rating system, the, the um, way they're currently being evaluated by the government for various purposes and, and make that system sort of reflect humanitarian or ethical considerations. So the Campbell's rating is a great example um, because it is essentially the way that the government currently evaluates and, and rates um, banks. And we can add into that some type of a, of, a, of a scale that basically determines how good of a job are they doing in terms of fulfilling the government's welfare uh, policy um, and promoting those goals. Because at the end of the day, uh, commercial banks are, are the conduits for the monetary policies, but a less discussed role, although not less important, is their um, is the way their role in the fiscal policy, how we administer and receive and make payments using the commercial banks as the main channel for the transfer of such funds. And so we can figure out a way to create some type of how satisfied are we with the methods of the delivery um, and whether those were humanitarian or, or equal or anti-discriminatory fair um, with regard to the end user, the consumers and rate them on that. And it will give them all sorts of benefits or advantages, ability to bid on certain things. Um, so that's, I think the best way to sort of regulate that and make them change internally, their cultural, um, their ethical you know, approach and, and their cultural approach to this because it will be part of what they're rated on and based on. Uh, Professor, do the, do the courts have any important role in guiding those banking priorities? So there are currently a bunch of um, lawsuits being filed across the country um, by, we'll call them the, the smaller folks, the smaller businesses, the you know, individuals, the people out there that um, suffered uh, from the consequences. And unfortunately, you know, because of their limited resources and, and uh, the fact that they were in an inferior position to begin with because they weren't the bigger customers and they weren't the people that the banks wanted to prioritize or the businesses that um, the banks wanted to help first. Um, they are obviously not entering these lawsuits in a superior position. However, um, they are trying to file lawsuits based on discriminatory treatment or um, fiduciary duties or you know, breaching those fiduciary duties on, 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 you know, on the part of the banks in terms of them not catering to their customers. However, there are no real laws that force banks to treat their customers with fiduciary duties. And, and so it's very tricky to kind of make those arguments per se, just say, you know, you have to treat us the way we want to be treated and your agents because it's not exactly right. So I think a better approach to that, as long as we have no such laws that mandate that, um, is to view the banks as the agents of the government sort of going back to what I said before. And if commercial banks are the agents of the government when we come to um, distribute funds or, or deal with um, mandating that our fiscal policies are, are materializing the way we, the government envision and want it to be, that's, I think, it's a, that I think is a stronger argument um, in, term, in terms of the banks doing this right and getting this right. Thank you, Professor. Uh, so now I'd like to move on to some questions that we have for Professor Kaminer. Uh, Professor, your article discusses how we can work to reach uh, herd immunity through broad scale vaccinations. Uh, the topic of vaccination is very contentious. Uh, oftentimes it touches on deeply personal beliefs, uh, sometimes based in religions and sometimes based in uh, political preference. Uh, with a vaccine expected soon, I'd like to know if you can outline for our listeners uh, what the legal landscape of vaccinations is, uh, who are some of the stakeholders and who can actually make vaccines. 
Yes, sure. Um, so people are often surprised to learn that state governments actually have pretty significant authority to pass mandatory vaccination laws. And so states have legal authority to enact broad mandatory vaccination under the state police powers that would cover every individual living in a given area. And this actually dates back to a 1905 United States Supreme Court, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, where there was a mandatory state law that everyone in Cambridge, Massachusetts had to be vaccinated during a smallpox epidemic. And these types of really broad laws that cover everyone don't happen that often anymore, but they still do occur. So for example, last year in April of 2019, there was a measles outbreak in New York City. And the New York City Health Commissioner issued an emergency order that was upheld that anyone over the age of six months who either lived, worked, or went to school in one of four zip codes had to be vaccinated against measles. The problem with these types of very broad mandatory policies covering everybody who lives in an area or everybody who works in an area is that they are quite heavy handed. As you pointed out, there are a lot of people who are opposed to vaccination. They could be controversial and they can end up backfiring. So a less intrusive approach which state governments can take and which currently each of the 50 state governments do take is to require vaccination, but for only certain segments of the population. So for example, currently all 50 states require some form of compulsory vaccination for children who attend daycare facilities or K to 12 schools. There are states that require mandatory vaccination in healthcare facilities for college students, for nursing homes. So it's this idea that if you want access to certain benefits, you need to be vaccinated. So there's already this framework in place for that. It is not as heavy handed as a broader mandate and a COVID-19 vaccine could just be added into that. So that's one approach and that would be an approach through government. A second approach would be an approach through private businesses. And obviously with private businesses, they have significantly more flexibility than the government because with private businesses adopting compulsory vaccination policies, they're just simply not subject to constitutional restrictions at all. So you might have private businesses mandating vaccination of all employees or private businesses mandating vaccination of all customers. Um, in the past, very few businesses outside of healthcare facilities or nursing homes have done so. And the reason they haven't is out of concern that people would view this as an unacceptable invasion of their personal lives. The question is the extent to which the landscape has changed since we're in the midst of the worst pandemic in a century right now. You know, whether people's approach to that could perhaps be a little bit different. And then finally, and this is not a mandate, this is more from the behavioral economics perspective, people can be nudged to be vaccinated. And this can be extraordinarily effective in increasing vaccination rates. And the important thing here is you need to have public health messaging by whoever it is that members of a particular community respect and trust could be religious leaders, it could be social media influencers, it could be celebrities, it could be professional athletes. Um, just to give a few examples of this, um, during the measles outbreak last year in 2019 in New York, uh, the Orthodox Jewish community was very hard hit by it and the vaccination rates were pretty low. And so what happened was the Orthodox Jewish Nurses Association was actually at the forefront of educating the Orthodox Jewish community on the safety and efficacy of vaccination because that is who this community would actually listen to. Um, another example, a very different type of example goes back to polio. Back in 1956, almost no teenagers were being vaccinated against polio. The teen vaccination rate was less than 1%. It was about 0.6%. And then Elvis Presley went on the Ed Sullivan, Ed Sullivan, Sullivan show and got a polio vaccine. And within six months, the vaccination rate of teenagers increased astronomically from that 0.6% to over 80%. 
So that type of nudging can be extraordinarily effective in addition to these more targeted state mandates along with employer and private business policies covering customers and employees. Uh, so Professor, so of those three kind of categories of way to distribute a vaccine, um, what do you think is the most effective way uh, for a COVID vaccine um, to be distributed when it comes out? Yeah, you know, I think probably the most effective would be to have state mandates, but limited state mandates. So to the extent that a state now requires all school children to be vaccinated against, say, uh, measles, get the MMR vaccine, to add COVID to that because there's already a framework in place. I think with employers what are, and with private businesses as a whole, it would really depend on the type of business. So for example, um, there are certain businesses which are much higher risk for the spread of COVID, restaurants, bars, gyms. Um, within those types of businesses, a private business's mandate might make sense. And then certainly I see absolutely no downside to the public messaging. So I really think it needs to be a combined approach of all three. Great, thank you. Uh, so, so at this point, I'm gonna pose uh, three more questions um, and I'm pretty much just gonna open the floor up to whoever wants to respond. Uh, so as uh, Professor Kaminer uh, mentioned earlier, uh, Pfizer has recently released data about the effectiveness of its COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, the data is extremely promising. According to public filings by Pfizer, uh, the vaccine candidate was more than 90% effective in preventing COVID-19 in participants who did not show uh, any prior COVID-19 infection. Uh, Dr. Fauci has expressed his thoughts that a vaccine may be available in early April. Uh, what are each of your thoughts on how a vaccine will impact uh, the topics each of you wrote about? And just feel free to chime in. And so my, my topic is vaccines, so I'll start off. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think the impact it could have is the fact that these preliminary results are so remarkably positive where Dr. Fauci had initially said that, you know, he would be satisfied with a vaccine that was 50% effective. The fact the preliminary results say that it's more than 90% effective. I am very hopeful that that will actually lead more people to be willing to be vaccinated. Because one of the issues with vaccination is that when people look at what they perceive to be the risk benefit analysis, if it is a vaccine which they do not consider very effective, they don't think it is worth the risk. So for example, according to the CDC's data since 2011, the flu shot has been less than 50% effective every year. Now certainly there's still reasons why people should get the flu shot. It lessens the severity of the disease, it impacts herd immunity, but for any individual person, it decreases the likelihood they will be vaccinated. I am actually very hopeful that this incredibly high success rate, that these results of over 90% will lead many people who might not have been vaccinated with a 50% effective vaccine to actually be vaccinated. Well. Professor Baker and I wrote on the area of college sports. And just as I look at the way that colleges and big time athletic programs have behaved in a number of other areas, keeping those update with COVID-19, uh, I have two concerns about my, what might happen as a, as a vaccine becomes available. Uh, first, Dr. Baker and I, along with uh, John Holden uh, and a good friend of mine, Dr. Andy Schumann, uh, who is on medical faculty at the University of Michigan have a follow-up piece at Michigan State University. And one of the things we talked about in the follow-up full review uh, entails concerns with PPE uh, that they're being provided not to where they should be, not to those in greatest need, but priority to the athletes. So my one concern uh, as a vaccine becomes available uh, is how do we ensure that a university uh, is not as a revenue maximizer uh, providing access to the vaccine to get college football players or basketball players back on the field in the court uh, if there might be others at the university that might have a greater need for the limited amount of the vaccine. So that's concern one of two. 
Uh, concern two comes back to this same theme, uh, which was point one of our paper, and I probably have spoke about it in nausea. And, and that is if the idea that if college athletes in football and basketball, despite their revenues, are being treated as student athletes and student first, uh, we can't put greater obligations on them uh, than the student overall, and in good faith, say that they're students first. Uh, so if a university were to have a protocol that says all students that wish to return to campus uh, have to take uh, the vaccine, uh, at least notwithstanding any concerns that Professor Kaminer may have, uh, I would not be bothered by that general idea. By contrast to that, uh, if a college said we want to maximize revenue from football, so we are going to make our football players take the vaccine before they could return to school and play football, uh, but we are going to allow our band members to play in the band without a vaccine, uh, that to me would be usually problematic. And there's also a concern I would like to add. I agree with everything that uh, my colleagues said, Ed, and I would add that it could be an issue to where if you have limited resources and you're funneling them towards revenue generating sports like men's basketball and men's football, and you're not giving them to the volleyball team, you're not giving them to the tennis team, the track team, it could create Title IX concerns as well. You know, So I think that's something to keep an eye on. So I'll go last because I think uh, I'm, I'm last, but I also think uh, my my topic is um, the hardest to answer in in that regard, and and I think it's because I mean obviously this is great news, and I think what it's what everyone pretty much needed, like the entire world was waiting for uh, some positive news like that. Um, having said that, I think it's going to be a while before uh, we actually feel the impact on the economy, and in particular on the individual businesses and the individual you know, people's needs, financial needs, that is, because I think, um, I, I'm hoping it's not gonna be an L curve, but it for sure will be a while before things start bouncing back. So, you know, businesses that laid off a lot of their employees um, and haven't closed, they're gonna have a hard time figuring out when to open again, who to recruit. Um, businesses that have closed, Will they want to open? In what capacity? Can they financially afford it? Do they need more loans? Do they want to take more loans? How in debt do people want to be? Um, do individuals have enough money to last until we actually start feeling the impact of you know the potential vaccine, or do we need another couple of rounds of of you know extra fund distribution? So. A lot of questions and, and very few answers, I think, at this point on the in, on the financial um, aspect. But it is definitely great news, and I think if nothing else, people just need hope. Um, so if you're sort of hanging there and not really sure what to do, it's always you know good to have good news rather than have you know more bad news. So on that you know front, I think it's great. But we'll have to kind of wait and see, wait it out, and hopefully this winter is not going to be too tolling in the interim on on definitely the you know restaurants and the smaller businesses that are still trying to um, survive with the funds that they got, it's going to be challenging. But you know we need to get through a few more months and hopefully things will start falling into place. Uh, thank you. Uh, so President-elect Joe Biden is poised to become president in January 2021. Um, as part of his COVID relief plan, uh, he has proposed increasing federal funding and guidance to states, small businesses, and schools so that they can safely reopen. Uh, he has proposed implementing a rigorous nationwide rapid testing program um, and is also considered a national map mandate. This is kind of in line with the, the previous question, but what, what are some of your thoughts on those proposals um, in the context of the topics that each of you wrote about? I'd say that in terms of um, the financial um, plan and where things are going to go on that front, I think that you know, Biden has been talking about the stimulus relief plan that includes un unemployment benefits and student loan forgiveness and all sorts of other um, stimulus payments and, and maybe even um, a second round of, um, of relief checks, individual checks for, uh, for people. Um, and we'll have to wait and see, but I think some of the lessons have been learned um, and also what happened in March and April is not gonna necessarily repeat itself because before we were operating in complete hysteria and just trying to um, give money, you know, sort of like poor money is a better description, I guess, at the problem to kind of, you know, solve this and no one really knew how long it was going to take and whether it's going to be very short term or, or, you know, medium term. And so now I think things are a little bit clearer and 
less hysterical and standards have been set in place and certainly enough shaming and enough attention has been given to um, the you know different types of groups that suffered discriminatory treatment from the banks and in, in getting those funds. So I think at least some of these things um, are gonna be better in the next times around, um, which, is, which is good. And I guess we'll just have to kind of wait and see and hopefully um, the perspectives that the time length that we're talking about is not gonna be too long and we're still able to manage this without um, causing so, too much uncertainty in the financial markets. So I was just going to say with um, President-elect Biden, he had mentioned at one point that he would get all the governors in a room and tell them all you need to enact mask mandates, you know, keep it at a local level, but with guidance from the federal government in terms of this is what needs to be done. And I thought that was a very good approach to masks. I also think that could be a very, very good approach to vaccines. You know, there certainly are some areas where the federal government might consider actually mandating vaccination itself. So for example, um, a prerequisite to obtaining or renewing a passport to decrease the risk Americans could be infected with COVID-19 abroad and then continue the spread of the virus in their home communities. So, you know, there are some examples of perhaps where um, federal regulations would be appropriate, but I think simply working with the states and encouraging the states to do what is best at the state level um, would be very effective for the federal government. And then uh, finally, so as we approach one year of living uh, with COVID-19, uh, what legal issues do each of you see on our horizon? Um, what have we learned from this pandemic? Um, and what issues do we need to address to make us better prepared uh, for future large-scale crises and pandemics? So I guess I'll, I'll quickly start. Um, so before, in, in March and April, and as I was mentioning before, initially the government turned to um, the commercial banks and, and has asked for their assistance. And it took a while before um, the, the government has opened up the opportunity for uh, financial technology companies, FinTech, to also start um, helping with this and and uh, and figuring out better standards for the banks and the FinTechs. And I think the lessons, as I mentioned before, have, have been learned in terms of, um, we already know what we're dealing with, everybody knows what the standards should be, um, caps and, and numbers and quotas have been um, discussed and determined. And so I think in that um, sense, we're, we're better off also um, what has been very much expected and, and has actually happened is that we've been able to uh, detect thus far enough uh, fraud cases. And also that's another lesson that has been learned how to kind of, especially um, those numbers were higher among the financial technology companies. The fintech companies have um, have seen larger numbers of, of um, fraud cases among the applicants uh, seeking financial um, seeking financial help and funds and loans. Uh, and I think, you know, as we sort of have gotten to know the process better and see what the difficulties might be and, and where people would try to cut corners and what types of uh, requirements we should um, include to make the process more smooth and less um, fraud soliciting, uh, I think we're going to be seeing less of that in the future. And I think that is good and we sort of know what we're looking for and, and who are the weaker parties and kind of what to expect. And, and, and those are all, all hopefully things that will help us better address things and needs like that in the future um, with regards to the financial programs and aid. So I think that's a good thing. I would say within um, college football, there has been an unintended consequence, something that was a little bit unexpected and yet could provide legal ramifications that go well beyond COVID-19 and the management thereof. And that is in the sense that what we saw at schools like UCLA, what we saw at uh, institutions like, like, um, like that where student athletes actually mobilized, they came together and they collectively decided that they would boycott any athletic events unless certain protocols were put in place for their safety, unless they felt that there was more transparency in the way their program was being managed. 
And that kind of unification, that kind of organization from a student-generated perspective could be very powerful moving forward in how college sports is regulated. Because student athletes for the entirety of the NCAA really haven't had a voice in how they are governed. And, it's, and if they start speaking out, if they start finding their voice on, on issues related to COVID, then certainly they could also realize that they have power in what they're doing and they have the ability through the potential of boycott even to effect meaningful change on a host of other areas, including their compensation. So I think the, you know, COVID-19 coupled with what happened this summer with the social justice movement related to Black Lives Matter really helped student athletes realize that they have power and they have a say. And if they come together, they can, they can do things that are very special. And I'm interested to see if they continue this trend moving forward. And I hope that they do and I empower them to do so. So if, if nobody else has it, Mark, are you? Uh, if I could talk just beyond sports for a moment uh, and show that I'm more than just a jock professor here. Um, you know, if we look at COVID-19, on one hand, nobody six months earlier knew that COVID-19 was coming. Nobody knows what the next crisis is going to be. But throughout American history, there have always been crises that we've had to confront that have been unexpected, whether it be a terrorist attack in 9-11 or the very, very rapid financial crisis from the moment it onset in 2008 or COVID-19. The best that we could do as a society is to take reasonable proportions in advance to make sure that we have some of the most skilled people in narrow areas in society in the right places. So when the unpredictable crisis happens, we could handle them to the best of our ability. We are finishing up an administration in this country that had referred to many of the people that we consider to be the best and the brightest in government as the deep state and had removed a lot of the government employees in various roles in the months leading up to COVID purportedly to save money. Now, we didn't know that this crisis was going to be COVID. We knew that we needed all of these people with various different expertise to be working in our government to prevent whatever crisis came based on which one it was. Now, we might overreact here and now really build up in terms of the area of preventing infectious diseases. But given that we can't really predict what the next crisis will be, uh, I think we need to rebuild our government in all areas. And many of those people who've been insulted and called the deep state or an expense on money actually are incredibly educated in their narrow areas and could do an incredible amount uh, to investigate potential problems that others might not be able to diagnose and act them quickly if they come. Uh, so if there's one thing that I hope we as a society learn as we sit in this crisis with this terrible virus that we can't get rid of, which came down just a few years after we cut our budget in terms of handling these kind of things, is the importance of having experts in the government in all areas that are super focused on these unlikely events in case they incur and to have global relations in place when these things do happen. So we could work quickly and transparently with other countries to try to resolve them as helpfully as we can. Perhaps, it, I'm not saying we could have avoided COVID, but perhaps it didn't have to be as bad as it is. And then I, I just want to add one more sort of specific thing, which is that 
I think vaccine hesitancy, which has been a growing problem in this country and around the world, really does need to be addressed. In 2019, the World Health Organization listed vaccine hesitancy as one of the top 10 threats to global health. And again, getting back to Pfizer's incredible results of over 90% effectiveness, I'm very hopeful that such an effective vaccine might be able to change the views of some people who have thus far been vaccine hesitant. Great. Uh, so with that, um, I've exhausted uh, all the questions that we have uh, for our panelists. Uh, once again, I just want to thank everybody for taking time out of their schedule to join us um, and, and discuss some of these important issues with us. The Forward Podcast is brought to you by the Wisconsin Law Review, a journal of legal scholarship published by University of Wisconsin law students. A special thanks to the Law Review Associates who made this production possible, Dylan Ochoa, Laura Schwendeman, and Miranda Salazar. Please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform to stay up to date on our new episodes. Thanks for listening.